Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Swaridge, and joining us are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. This is episode 17, where we'll be discussing lines 53 and then 56 and 57 on the failure and the double failure, respectively. So, what have we been up to since our last recording? Johanna? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I fenced for the first time since March the 1st. Um, but yeah, because I decided to go visit my club members and I organised a nice get-together and a sparring day. And I was really good, at least in some regards, because <laughs> there were crazy people <laughs> who could go on like for fights after fights after fights. Well, I was out of breath after, I don't know, one minute of sparring. But my hemoing was all right. Um, I, I think I managed to stay fit during the lockdown, at least a bit. Nice. I didn't do much hema, but I tried to stay fit in some other ways. And that helped. <laughs> and I had two or three moments where I managed to push through different kinds of uh, Stücke in a nearly perfect way. And it felt amazing. Um, they were mostly to be Oh, sorry. Oh. Would... <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, were you doing yeah, because... anything from these, uh, yeah. from these podcasts? Yes, because I used it to prepare today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was mostly uh, the, the Fila and the Fakira, at least what I could find out about the Fakira, but mostly the Fila. And this one time I did a textbook fila by Lev, so the two Unterhau, and the thrust to the throat, and then followed by a faint, uh, the, the Zwerkau faint. And then the real Zwerkau, and it felt amazing. Ugh. And I managed to pull it off against two different club members, and it was so cool, because um, one of them, my best Hima buddy, who is like the Zwerkau god in my club, and felt really, really good making him eat Zwerkhaus for a change. Ah, I hope he's listening to this. Uh, to this. <laughs> yeah, so I finished. Him a link. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am not sorry. Right. Brilliant. Well, you heard it here, folks. Listening to this podcast makes your fencing better. All right. Thank you very much, Johanna. Uh, Michael Chillister, what have you been up to? I forget when we last recorded an episode. But for the past few weeks, I've been uh, heavily working on updates to Wichtenauer um, articles. And I put the finishing touches on two of the big three rapier texts, um, which would be Nicoletto Giganti and Rodolfo Capoferro. And for the Capoferro article, I managed to track down a painted copy of the 1632 printing which is the second edition, um, that's rather nice. And I, I love the painted books, um, partly because they're just nice and they make the articles look nicer, and partly because people don't seem to realize that painting books was totally a significant part of early modern book culture, and that the prints that we think of as being these black and white things were intended to be painted, and only the cheap version was unpainted. So putting those in there often sparks conversations about that. Uh, cool. I'm, I'm trying to track down a second painted Capoferro at the moment because the one that I found was only about a third of the pictures were painted, um, and I want to get complete coverage on that. And I've also done some other 
we can have articles that are less important, but those two uh, are pretty important for rapier fencers. No one cares about Michael Hunt nearly as much. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you very much. Uh, Steve, what have you been up to in the last couple of weeks? I did some cutting last weekend, which was interesting because I think my, or at least some of the work that I've been doing on the Tsverhow and trying to get like the mechanics and like the follow-ups has been paying off because usually I have a lot of trouble cutting with the Tsverhow, but I was able to do it pretty consistently when we did cutting. And I, th I also want to mention um, in the HEMA Discord, the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about judging and we did a couple of like judging things in the voice channel where we kind of tried to um, describe what was happening in an exchange, like a, in a in a video that somebody hosted, which I think was cool and pretty productive. Sweet. So that's like looking at past tournament footage. Yeah, tournament or sparring footage. Cool. And the uh, uh, the the end result, like where where somebody hit, wasn't necessarily the most important thing we were looking at, but what was happening in the exchange leading up to it. Would you be running that again? Because I've seen it happening. It's always been at like nine o'clock in the morning time <laughs> here while I'm at work, which is frustrating. Yeah, we'll definitely do more. Cool. Thank you very much. Uh, T, what have you been up to? Um, so fencing-wise, I went and fenced some modern fencing for a bit. My club is doing park sparring. So I did some epee for a change. Got stabbed a bunch. Epee's really weird. Is my fencing conclusion from trying it for like one day. And then also I've been doing this stuff with Steve. What? <laughs> Epe's garbage. Like Strong disagree. <laughs> it's just stick your arm out and hope you hit. That's all there is to it. That's, that doesn't really like uh, the secret to the epee master. It, it, it's well, not, it doesn't really mean much coming from a foil fencer. So, uh, I, I, I understand why you don't like FAT. You're short. I mean, true. To be fair, um, but yeah, uh, it was good to actually go out and do some do some fencing for a change. Cool. And then Are also, you taller some... than me, T? pardon? Are you taller than me? Maybe by an inch, not by much. Cool. Thank you very much. Uh, unless there's anything else you'd like to add? No, I was just going to reiterate that the judging stuff we've been doing in the HEMA Discord has been a, a good fun way to spend some time looking at fencing and understanding what's going on in fencing actions, kind of who's attacking, who's reacting, what does it look like when someone's about to attack, that sort of thing, which is great for judging and is also actually great for just training your fencing. Yeah, I've got to agree on that. Like Being able to watch fencing and analyze it and give a, a verdict is a really useful skill because when you're actually fencing somebody, what you're doing, then you're watching their fence and you're analyzing it, you're judging it. It's like, oh, that's what it looks like when somebody's about to commit to an attack, or oh, that's what it looks like when somebody's trying to fake committing to attack, but they aren't really. If you can recognize that, the applications to real fencing are pretty obvious. Yeah, I feel like I've improved at it um, because of our, you know, our sessions also. Or at least add doing it to a video. Yeah. Cool. What have I been up to in the last couple of weeks? Uh, been fencing a little bit. Been 
running a couple of mini mock tournaments to try and get timings down for the real deal. And nothing to do with reading books about sword fighting, <laughs> which is good progress. Shout out to Pedro San Miguel, if he's listening, who's now, thanks to some HEMA ratings, putting some new readings in, the best longsword fencer in the UK since September last year. Ooh. Nice work, Pedro. He's a very tidy fencer. Yep. Uh, so, let's get back to the text. Johanna, would you be able to give us the original German for line 53, and then 56 and 57 on the double inverter? I should probably mention that we're... Um, we're we're not doing the inverter at all this episode. We're doing the failure and the double failure. And so the way that the text goes is it goes failure, inverter, double failure. This is a little bit too confusing for me this time in the morning. So we're going for failure, double failure, new episode on the inverter. Does that make sense? Or am I just rambling? Cool. All right, Johanna, could you give us the German? Yeah. Okay. It's... Fehler wer führt, von unten nach Wünsche rührt. Uh, then there's the inverter thing in between. And Fehler zwiefach trifft man den Schnitt mit Mach. Zwiefach ist für Bass. Scheid in Link und bis nicht las. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us a Harry's rendering into English? Fehler misleads and hits low where you please. Avoid twice, if you touch, make a slice. Double fold, and on it goes. Step in left, and don't be slow. Thank you very much. All right, um, probably easiest to start with the, the single failure. What's the kind of the mechanics of the action being described? So I guess I'll take a first go at this for bringing Condanza it works kind of differently and Lev at least in, in the details. But the basic the basic play that's described is you start an attack with typically a simple descending cut. And then as they begin to parry, you pull the attack away and cut with a Tverhau underneath to one side or the other, your choice. One of the interesting things is this is described as an, an action you plan, like a thing you do against someone who's ready to parry. So it seems to be a, a pre-planned compound attack instead of like a ne not necessarily a reaction in the moment uh, to a power you see while you're busy developing the attack. Cool. So so this is not reactive. It's pre-planned. It's eyes closed. Yeah, that was the the phrase I was like fishing around. The idea of um, eyes closed versus eyes open is that when an action is eyes closed, you've planned both parts. You've planned the first cut and the pulling away and the undercut. Um, whereas eyes open, you do the you start the cut and then you see they're going to parry and you pull your cut away kind of as a reaction in the moment, which is a lot harder to do, but uh, obviously means that you have some protection against. Uh, doing it eyes closed is faster. It works uh, really efficiently if they do what you expect, and it means you get kind of screwed if they don't do what you expect, uh, is the trade-off. So what's the cool. exact motion in uh, Rayek and Danzig? Um, to just read it directly off the text, pretty much. Act as if you'll strike. But yeah, act as if you'll strike a free over here to his side, to the head. Steal away your sword with the hue and strike him with the tear to the lower opening of his right or left side. Cool. I think specifically right side, but Danzig says either one. Both say either one. Okay. They are near um, identical on this particular play. Here, 
left, I guess, is a little bit different. So <laughs> after the, the couplet from the Zettel, it explains a little bit the failure by saying that you do it planned, I guess, is how I um, how I rendered it. Yeah. Um, and you do it against a, a fencer who readily displaces which could be parry or attack, but I'm guessing parry here from the context. So do it against Fencer, who readily uh, This is a bad idea of a move against somebody who likes counterattacking. Yeah, and who hews to the sword and not the exposures of the body. That's how, how I gave it. So you're pretty sure that when you attack them, they're going to parry rather than counterattack. And so you do an underhew from both sides, and then when you... Uh, you do one from your right side, shoot the point in long to the breast so that they have to displace it, and then spring quickly uh, to your left. And as you do it, you sort of feint that, that upwards cut, spring to your left, and cut round to the other side. Is that fair? Yeah. It's uh, shooting the point, so they parry, fake attack to your left, to their right, and real attack to their left. You're Both right. of them are at Tverhaus. Well, neither of them are actually explicitly Tverhaus in Lev. Um, yes, they are. Which, what, yep. what word are you translating as Tver? Sorry, I'm looking at the text and I don't see a Tver anywhere in there. Do as if you want to strike him to with the lateral and jerk the hue away and strike quickly around again to the left side. Yeah, the, the, the feint is at Tverhaus. Yeah, yeah. So you come in, shoot in the point, he parries, then you feign its fair how to his right, and then it says strike quickly around again to the left side, which it doesn't say what the second one is, but since it's again, I would assume that it's another fair how. Yeah, you're right. That is in the, but that is not in Winslow's translation, which is on Wikdenauer, which is why I missed it. Uh, let me see. Yeah, same here. I'm digging into the transcriptions now. Yeah, the Augsburg transcriptions. Alfsein rechten Seiten und zu Alstu in mit der Zwer dazu schlagen wollest und verzug den Hau und schlag bald weiter um zu der linken Seiten. Yeah, it definitely is in there. Yeah, but it is not in there in Christian in Corey's translation, which is interesting. Yeah. Not sure why he did that. All right. Could have been a failure. And let's take this up another power level just quickly. How about the double failure? So the double failure is a lot more complicated. I can do the ring version, which is... I don't know if it's simpler let's, or harder, but it's the only one I know. Wait, really. let, let's wait on the ring version and do the Danzig and Love one first. And so the same yeah, ring gets fair. a little hairy with different versions of ring being saying different things. Okay, so I'll just say it. Danzig and Lev. So this one, um, the first move is pretty straightforward. I think this is what most people think about when they think about the failure. It's just Tverhau to their left side, so normal strong side Tverhau, but you pull it away before it hits, and you come around and hit the uh, their right side. And then it says, I believe, if they parry, then step to the same side and uh, do a duplirin with a, uh, with a slice. 
um, or follow them over both arms and slice. Uh, so important detail, it's, it specifies if he parries and you hit his sword, which is important because the other live version doesn't have you hit his sword. Right. Yeah. Speaking of which, there's two different versions in live. Yes. One, the other, so the alternate version, reason. the alternate version is actually located at the end of the um, shield howl section. But it quotes the whole 56 and 57 verse again, and then yes. gives a completely different gloss for it. Well, so I mean, we'll it's it the here. same idea, but the word, but completely different text. Yeah. Nice. The only version, only, only verse that's glossed twice. Um, Do you want like, to paraphrase the um, the second level one, Michael? Oh, is or it my you, turn? If you um, want to. Sure. So uh, he. It starts the same as the other failures. Um, it says that set your left foot forward, hold your sword in your right shoulder. Um, when you see he is even to you, spring with, out with your right foot on your right side. Do as if you will hew a free overhew to his left side, to his head. Um, if he drives then before with the parrying. So he tries to parry you, steal the strike away. Spring with your left foot to his right side. And do as if you'll cut to the other side, but steal the hue away again and come back around to the first side and strike him freely on uh, from your right side. So fake out to your right, fake to your left, and then strike for reals to your right again. And then this is all with, you will, what's that? This is all with Oberhouse too, not Sphere. Uh, yeah. It doesn't it doesn't specify any cut except for the first one, which is a free Oberhouse. So presumably you'd continue, although because this is the Tverhaus section, I feel like we can insert Tverhaus whenever we want to if it's not specified. Well, but this is the Shielhaus section. But, yeah. Well, but the verse is not. Um, but if yeah. you want to try it with the Shielhaus, I'd like to see video. But so, the author I mean, definitely uh, moved it on purpose, right? Uh, so then he, he finishes by saying mm -hmm. if he will attack after your opening while you're doing this, you fall with the long edge on his arms and press him from you. That's my favorite part. Oh, and yeah. then he also says at the end that you can also do this same combination using a Tverhau instead of an Oberhau. Yeah. Yeah, you have a similar phrase in the um, in the Danzig stuff for the single failure where it says that you can like set this up from a Tverhau instead of an Oberhau if you feel like it. Right. I mean, the double failure in the in Danzig and Lev, the regular one, tells you that you can use Oberhau instead of a Tver. Yeah. Um, so clearly these are interchangeable, and you don't have to use a Tver out of from these techniques, which is part of why I sort of wish these weren't in this section, but that's not important to this podcast. <laughs> T, can you give us Ringek? Yeah. Yeah, so Ringek goes a bit mad here. <laughs> the play kind of keeps going for a while, but it starts in pretty much the same way. Uh, you come towards them, you spring with the right, right foot and act as if you'll do your thwart to your tear, your lateral to their left side, uh, your normal uncrossed strong side terhau. Then you steal it away and strike in on the right side to the head. And then that's the first misleading. Uh, and then you do the second one where you take the cut under the arms and strike around to the left side. Uh, I think that's partly a combination the insertion of a slice here is partly a combination of mixing up different gloss copies. But you basically, you go to one side, you go to the second side, you go back to the first side, 
uh, and then you cross your arms and you do a like slicey duplair anything behind the blade, which isn't called duplairin, but basically is. And finishes with a lovely little uh, section where you spring to the left. Uh, there are two copies of this play. One of them says, and they both say specifically which left it means. So whether it's your left or the opponent's left. Unfortunately, one copy says their left and one copy says your left. Uh, so good luck working that out. Which one do you believe? Uh, I think they both work. Or one, one of them says left and the other one says right. No, uh, it's Dynlinka and Steinlinka. Okay. I'm looking at Wichtenauer right now. So yeah. I believe the bit about taking the cut under his arms is only in Glasgow? It's only in one of the copies, yeah. Yeah, So it, and it doesn't really seem to work with the rest of it, in my experience. Yeah, I mostly skip that when I try to teach this play. Um, so I think that's a case where the author, yeah, miscopied something or... But the idea... I should say. Like, if, it, if that's a line which has been misplaced from slightly later, and the idea is instead that once you, like, instead of cutting with the long edge through the face, you take the slice through the arms, that would make a lot of sense and line up much better with Danzig Lev. Yeah, so Ringek's combination in general seems to remind me a lot of the second Lev gloss, although I seem to have deleted the page here where I diagrammed them both to see where the clauses line up. But at one point, I had reached that conclusion that... The first Danzig or the Danzig and the first Lev were teaching one version, and Ringek and the second Lev were were in semi agreement about a different version of the technique. Oh, yeah. Um, you know so what? The the, we have a twofold interpretation of the twofold failure. Failure. Yeah. Sorry, I, I was just looking. The left and right thing is um, the Dresden or the Glasgow. I think says his left side to his head. And the Dresden says um, his right side to his head for Does the it? striking round. Yeah. Um, the the key line here is um, uh, uh, like when spring im link das ist auf yeah. dein linke Seite. That's Dresden. Right. Whereas in Glasgow, it's und spring im link das auf das ist auf sein linke Seite. Right. Und yeah. That's another. That's a separate difference. They're both in there. But that's the only difference which is completely inconsistent, I believe. Or are you saying that a different one is? Yep. These two passages in the two books are, are so different that I just translated one yeah. of them and put it in my book and then put a footnote to a complete translation of the other one. There's a lot of different stuff in there. All right. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to say that listening to this, it's a lot of words. It's a lot of <laughs> it's a lot of their left, your left. Um, so the, the bottom um, line is we're doing a Zverka capture. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, are we? Are we? Because even the, except you're not getting, version, you're trying to avoid getting parried. The left version has underhues, which is interesting, but in its own right. But it's like yeah, it's yeah, is, is the setup Tverhouse or underhues? Is it you getting parries by cutting or by thrusting? You finishing it with a cut or with a, a hand press, like the exact mechanical details don't seem to fucking matter for this play, do they? <laughs> Excuse my French. So the first part of that is interesting because the whole idea of approaching with strikes is pretty unusual in the text. You sort of have it in the Abschneiden section. 
but otherwise it's basically just this and only in Lev, where he, in the Fekera, he also has a strange setup which begins out of distance with striking out of distance. And you don't, and that's sort of unlichtenauer like in most interpretations, including mine. So it's unclear why he's doing this at all. Um, Donzig and Ringak don't bother with that whole setup. They just say, do a cut, and that's how you begin. But wait a minute. I, I don't think it's Unleashed an Hour like at all. It's Based on think, what? Think about like you nearing what you want. You know, you throw your point out so it's in front of their face. Think about Spreckfenster. It's a, oh, this is basically the same setup right. as Spreckfenster, but with an Unterhau. We already have at least two strikes before you are actually planning to hit him. In I, I think it's very unlike MS3227A. Oh, definitely. But I think this is not a podcast just in terms about that, of, that makes me angry. Just in terms of the way the setup works, we don't have the, um, when you approach him in the Tufectin, which is the standard setup, when you approach him in the Tufectin, here is your play. We have approach him by doing this other play, and then we'll do the actual failure. So You're going to cut and cut, and then threaten him, and then you're going to do a failure. Right. So in Lev, I think that the... I think this is a change of intention in Lev. I think the stab from the Unterhau is a real stab, and if he doesn't parry it, then you'll stab him. Mm -hmm. And then only once he parries it do you do the failure. That's my take so on it. Maybe I shouldn't say this is unlicked in our like, but it's a departure from the way these things are usually described. Why do you oh, think yeah, that? Agreed. 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 Yeah. I agree That's with that. That's probably what I should have said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think... For me, the most interesting part of these plays is this description of the the strategic context that it gives, that you're fencing somebody who, if you attack, is going to try and parry, or they're going to try and beat your sword. Yeah. Because then it slots straight into the oldy modern Olympic fencing tactical wheel of there's somebody who's trying to play a parry or a post game, so you do a, a compound attack game against them. Yeah. Go ahead, Michael. Um, I was going to slightly change the subject, so if you have something on this subject, go first. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, as far as uh, big picture things go with, like, both of these plays, I think the big picture ideas that they're trying to get across are, A, the idea that you can like do a feint if and uh, attack a different target if somebody's trying to parry, and B, the idea of adding in, uh, or t I guess to further the idea of adding in um, mix-ups to your Tsverkopter game. So instead of continuing, if you get parried, instead of continuing to Tsverhow, do a Duplirin instead, or follow with the slice to their arms if they, you know, whatever. Yeah. One of the things I think is interesting about this is the, a phrase that turns up in the opening of a few of the versions, which is talking about doing free hues. Yeah. And that's which possibly is, a phrase that's worth sticking out and thinking about a bit yeah. more. So the, the term free hue, it shows up in like Talhofer and not Zettel, but certainly KDF adjacent German fencing texts. Is that fair? That could be a an evaluation of it. Just somebody who knows what they're talking about. But yeah, yeah. free long hues is also mentioned in the gloss a few times. As a bad thing. 
Right, Nakraisen is explicitly against people who do free long hues. Yeah. Maybe that's the only example in the main classes. So, so what's the difference between a, a hue from above and a free hue from above? My general breakdown of this, which is mostly based on Talhofer, is that a free action... Talhofer has, also has the free point and stuff like that, incidentally. He's got a few crazy ones. Is that the idea is a action where you are not trying to bind and not expecting a bind. Okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. A free is like unbound or un, unconstrained. So you're you're cutting in a way that you're not expected Cooker to bind. Talk about free hues. Pardon? Does the cooker talk about free hues? I mean, presumably he talks about literally everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, as far as I know, nobody specifically defines what a free hue is. So I usually think of it as just an initiating cut, like you're creating a fight out of nowhere, so you throw a big cut, or you know, creating a fight out of nothing, not responding to your opponent's. Um, stimulus at all. Yeah, I, I don't really have a big take on it. I, I I don't think it means anything special. I don't think it should be read too much into. The one thing I do tend to read into it a little bit is the idea that, like, for example, there's a bind and I step away while cutting like with extended arms. Um, that might be a free hue because I'm using distance and timing to get cover instead of the bind to get cover. And that like lines up a lot with how it gets described in Talhofer. Or more accurately, I guess, how it gets depicted in Talhofer uh, in his cryptic versions of the techniques. <laughs> Since he doesn't describe anything, really. Um, Unlike so, Ringek. An interesting... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just ragging on Ringek. <laughs> so an interesting thing um, that, that I really troubles me about this section is how little it has to do with the Tverhau in that it's presenting you with this idea of, of deception, of fainting. We, we didn't talk about what failure means, but I don't think it literally means F-A-I-L-E-R, failure, even though that's the cognate. Um, but it is some kind of fainting action or deceiving action. Um, and it presents that paradigm, and it does it occasionally referencing the Tverhau, but I don't really understand why this is part of the Tverhau section um, and like the Ausermina is not. Um, it just seems like some plays where you could maybe use a Tverhau if you want to, as opposed to a part of the teaching of the Tverhau. Who wants to talk me out of that position? I think that the Tverhaus are the easiest to do failures with, because it's very easy to change direction and go to the other side when you're doing a Tverhau. So if I had to speculate, that might be part of the reason. But, you know, Ringek doesn't even initiate it with a Tverhau. He does it with an Oberhau. Yeah, but he switches to a Tverhau. And then, yeah, he throws a Tverhau in second. He follows yeah. with a Tverhau, and that action is a very, like, it's one of the very few ways to, like, conveniently follow up from a relatively committed-looking Oberhau. Yeah. And then he so, uses a Tverhau for the double failure as well. So it definitely shows up in both of them. Is it just that the Tverhau is the most reasonable way to cut around in general? I mean, Ringek's Dukin could also be described as a Tverhau. Yeah, and I but mean, we also, have those, we also have those failures from Lev that are not Tverhaus at all. I think that you don't have to, like when you, you know, cut to the other side with an overhue, 
you need to change directions. So you need to pull back and then, and only then can you strike. And when you do a Tsver how, it's just one action rotating around. So like an odd name and you don't need to do a Tsver how for, or I mean, I think it would maybe slower. Well, maybe. So typically an abnamen is like two steps, right? You lift up and then you come down. Right. Whereas the thing about using a twer for this is that the the process of moving your sword away from the first opening is also beginning the cut to the second opening, which is quite nice. Yeah, you don't have to change direction. You don't have to stop and then go. But I mean, obviously no one's going to have like a like a definitive answer for why these are in the twer house section. I think they belong more than the Fikara does, the inverter. <laughs> well, they're also in the shield house section, so... Yeah, in love. My gut feeling is simply that, like, if you want to put these anywhere in the five strikes, this is probably the best place to put them. Of course, if you go to 3227A, I believe he says they belong with the Krumpas, so... Maybe. He says something that could be construed that way. Yeah, I, I, I don't see them uh, fitting in there either. <laughs> Um, all right. A bit of me thinks that we can wrap this up pretty soon. Does anybody have anything else to add on these two plays? Yeah. I have, a, I guess, a couple other things. I think that the Lev version, or the, so, the Lev Shieldhouse, or Twofold Failure, that is uh, just Oberhouse. My favorite thing about that is when it talks about the slicing, it says if he then reaches for your opening, fall with the long edge onto the arms with the slice and press from you. So to me, this is uh, one of the few cases where you're kind of doing a counter against someone who's trying to do a nachreisen against you. So my take on this situation is you're doing these fancy failures and your opponent sees that you're not actually doing attacks, you're just faking it, and tries to go for a direct stab, which is the correct response. And now, in order to uh, counter that, you're just falling on top of them with the slice. So I think that's interesting. But I'm probably reading a little bit into that as well. Does anybody have a comment on that? or? I never have comments on Liu's specific case of gloss. <laughs> Yeah. Even though it's the best one. Uh, that's interesting. I don't think I keyed in on the word reaches for your opening before. It might also suggest that there's a distance component to this that we haven't necessarily discussed. Like perhaps you're not, you're moving in and out with these strikes if he has to reach for you. Yeah. Well, it's also going to be different distance if you're doing it with an over, an over, an overhue versus a, uh, it's fair how. Fairhouse is going to be a little bit closer. And also, if you're mixing in thrusts. Although there's nothing about that in here except for the very first play at the beginning. Yeah, that's true. This is not modern Olympic fencing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the fact that they also talk about slices is also an interesting thing because we see this a couple other times in the gloss that a a section will end in something that's twofold or double, and there will be a slice involved. So I think Nachreisen, we also see that, and it's a very similar situation. 
where you're kind of coming off of a bind and then just dropping your sword down and slicing the hands, which is not something that we see in sparring, or I personally don't see it in sparring a lot. But it seems to be the case. And that would also, even though it's not glossed in the, um, in the settle for the Scheidelhau, it ends with uh, pressing the sweeps and withdrawing with slicing. So more pressing and slicing at the end of a section. So I just thought that was maybe an interesting pattern that they have where things are kind of ending with a slice. But again, I might just be reading too much into it. No, I think it's it's definitely interesting that that seems to be one of the go-to ending techniques. Yeah. What it makes me think of is how Aikido practitioners finish everything with a wrist lock. <laughs> <laughs> Do they? Yeah, you throw them to the ground and then you have to get that wrist lock in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean if you're if you're thinking about like distances and things happening if you're attacking with the sword the last the closest thing that you can do, or if with the blade, the closest thing you can do with it is a slice. Especially if distance is collapsing. Yeah. Uh, we talked about the fact that the single failure, or the tsiakha in a single failure, is supposed to hit um, the lower opening, so uh, below the belt. <laughs> I mean, we still haven't talked about where the belt is supposed to be, but I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen uh, <laughs> a tsiakha that goes uh, to the lower opening. I think I've seen some that go, I don't know, to the ribs or to the armpit, but I don't think I've ever seen one that goes that low. I tend to try and aim, if I'm trying to do this play, I try to aim it at like the, just under the floating ribs. The, it gives you a nice sort of um, continuation of motion, especially if you make the tear on the same side that you were making the cut to, the, the beginning over how to, um, because okay. your sword point just keeps coming down, basically. Your your sword point starts coming forwards and down. Your hands go forwards, and then you push the hands up and let the sword just keep falling um, to go under the parry and come in onto the like under the under the ribs. It works well if you're taking a really long deep step to get really low. I don't think I've ever received the tsvierkau to the lower openings, but I'm small. Well, when you're <laughs> tall and you're fencing short fences. <laughs> I don't think I've received very many filler openings, but I know that I hit like Travis Mayett there a bunch. Oh, nice. Uh, but see, then yeah. he's like he's six inches taller than me, so as as far as Tsarehaus go, uh for the lower openings I kinda consider anything under the arms to be the lower openings for Tsarehaus. Whether or not the text agrees with that is debatable. Hunt Middle try seeks to clarify and says you should be aiming at his hip. Or wherever it may occur to you. Hmm. At his hip. Now you have Whoa. to really squat. <laughs> I normally in practice try to aim this roughly like an inch under the elbow. Like if you have your elbows down by the side of your body, I mean, I want to drift just under those. Because it's really, really hard to make an effective parry down there. Um, if you've been trying to parry a high line, so your point is up. If you're already pairing with the point down, you can drop it. But if your point is up, it's incredibly difficult to get it down there fast enough to cover. Yeah. Yeah, generally, if I do a failure when I'm sparring, I'll just do um, fake high on the 
on or to their left and uh, hit high to their right. Yes. Because <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm basic, which is, I guess, technically the first uh, twofold failure. It is. It's true. That's the first part of the twofold failure. Question. Cool. Um, so I think yeah. we're, we're wrapping up here. Is the twofold failure eyes open or eyes closed? That is an interesting question that I think has some variation by the gloss potentially. Ringek implies they are kind of like it feels like the first part is eyes um, eyes closed, and then there is potentially a decision point where you decide to go back around or you just hit. Um, would be my breakdown of Ringek's version, um, but I don't have an opinion on Lev Danzig. Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know about the second Lev. Which I think is what Michael was going to say, but for the I think, first I think level, that one's eyes open. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, some of it for the first dancing and Lev. I think it's pretty much the same as the uh, Ringek. The first initial action is eyes closed, and then when the bind or if the bind happens, you have a decision point. But yeah, so the second. Good. Is the decision point you started doing a single failure and then you decided? something happened and you switch the double failure or do you go into it with the intention of doing a double failure well you you're targeting a different opening than you would be if you were doing the single single failure so you're presumably deciding already that you're going to try and cut round like you're going to try and fake round to this opening and you probably have a backup plan where you like got a semi it doesn't really fit into the terminology but a sort of semi eyes open idea of i know that if i get qx i will continue in way in way y type situation Set my eyes up, and do we call that squinting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like you have planned, you know what they're. You have an expectation about their likely response, and you've planned a action you're going to do to counter that. But you might not have. So it's not fully eyes closed, and that you're waiting for that response, but it's also not fully eyes open, and that you've pre-planned your expected continuation. It's a change of intention. My... Yeah, I know Sajowski has some term for it, but I don't remember what that is offhand. My experience is that people doing an eyes closed action, it's normally no more than, say, three or four actions, like jab, jab, cross, or what have you. So I'd expect it to be you've gone in with the intention of underhouse stab, faint hit. And then you've seen that while you're executing that, it's not working the way that you think. So you just go faint. Faint hit. Makes sense? Yeah. Like, you don't have to plan 20 moves in advance. Right. Unless you're a Sabrua. Yeah. The other thing is that, like, eyes open and eyes closed breaks down a little bit when the action sequence gets long enough because you have enough time to react by the end to something which happened significantly earlier. Like, an action is only truly eyes closed, arguably, for the amount of time that it happens within a human reaction cycle. Yeah, that makes mm. sense. Which is, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, second love one now, and it says, "Do as if you want to throw a, or hit him with a free overhue to his left side to his head. If he then moves before with the parry, jerk the hue away again." So, I think that that kind of does suggest that this is a change of intention. Or not totally eyes closed because it's if he moves with the parry, it's not something you're definitely going to do. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, whereas if you look at the early ones, it says like, you know, do as if you will hew him with a free twer how to his head, but pull the cut and spring with the left foot and blah, blah, blah. Right. Yes. So bring us back to like Vor and Nah. So he's jumping the gun with the parry. And you see that. So you have a, an opportunity to go to render that action useless and still act before him. Yes. In fact, if anything, the phrasing here is quite similar to Ring X description of the uh, the phrasing there is quite similar to Ring X description of the Kurtzhell versus a potential cut, mm. where you act as if you're going to do a crump, and then when you see them start to parry, you do the other thing instead. Yeah, it could be like, and this is something that definitely works in fencing. It could be this could be actually a fully eyes open technique where you kind of start doing an overhaul and then you stop. You do like a little. Like yeah, you do a body faint, right? And then see what they do, and then depending on what you do, you continue. So that would be actually a fully eyes open attack. It would be a nice, yeah. It's still still compound, though. Right, compound, yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in to Fence. Actually, there's just one more thing I want to add, uh, if possible. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Go for it, T. Okay, so one other quick thing I wanted to bring out is that the something which is really interesting about this, I think, is that none of these plays use the word indes at any point, um, even when they're talking about changes of decision. Yes. And or like, and I think this like a lot of the time, I had a hypothesis for a while that the the ideal thing in Lixen Hour was always eyes open actions, very reactive and sort of flowing with the the exchange to the openings that became available, but it looks like and those are. And then I read the book, yeah. And the that sort of approach is used very heavily when there are binds. It's always emphasized when there are binds. You have binds, you have fulin, you have indes, you have going to whichever opening you feel the like, whichever opening is closest um, in a very reactive way. But when you're not working in a bind with actions like this, where you're pulling away before the bind, you never see the wor words like indes used. You never see words like fulin used. And I think that's really like indicative that. I know that a topic of modern argument is often, can you apply Indes and Fulun without a bind? And it's really interesting to me that these plays, which are some of the clearest actions where you're reacting to an expected action from the opponent or an action from the opponent without a bind, never ever use terms like Indes or Fulun to describe what you're doing and how you're making decisions here. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I do want to say, though, that just because... Just because one way of fencing is their the their ideal or like the Glossator's ideal way of fencing and something that deserves more praise than another doesn't mean that there's not other, you know, valid options that you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And like I'm not trying to say that, oh, these are bad plays because of that, but I found it like I found it interesting that when they have actions off the bind, they talk about Fulan and Des. And here, where the actions basically aren't off a bind, then that play is completely skipped. Those terms this are completely is skipped. Abandoning in distance, twitch fainting the warehouse. This is peak modern humor. <laughs> I think we've, uh, Steve and I analyzed some video of Martin Fabian and Reagan doing exactly that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we talk about modern Olympic fencing terms while pretending that we're talking about old fencing books. 
Uh, I've been your host, Michael Smoridge, and our panel have been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you for listening.